Now turn with me in your Bibles to our scripture reading found in the New Testament epistle of James. And uh, I will be adding just a couple of verses to what you have in your bulletin. I want to read first uh, James chapter 1 verses 1 uh, through 4. And then we will take up our uh, text with chapter 2 verse 14, and reading through uh, the end of the chapter. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hear the reading of God's holy word. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now turn to chapter 2, beginning with verse 14, please. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Well, I want to think about faith today, but I also want to think about the matter of righteousness, which is what uh, what, uh, faith will produce. Righteous works. Jesus said, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst 
for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The desire to be righteous, the desire to do what is right in God's sight, to be good people should be in the DNA of every follower of Jesus. We're called to become more and more like him, renewed in his image, in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. But how do we do it? It's easier to talk about living a righteous life than it is to actually live that way. But we have great encouragement to pursue practical righteousness in our daily lives right here uh, in the scriptures and particularly, uh, it seems to me, in the letter of James. Now, you, I don't know if you know much about the writer. James was actually raised in the household of Jesus. James was, was sometimes called the brother of Jesus. He was a son of Mary and Joseph. And uh, he had a nickname in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, James was called James the Just or James the Righteous. James was loved and respected by both Jews and Christians because he was noted for being a good man and seeking to be righteous and doing good. So maybe James is someone we can learn from. However, before we dig into the passage, I want to focus on the passage I read in, in uh, chapter 2, verses uh, nineteen or 14 through 19. Just a few verses there. But before we look at that, there's something we need to understand about, uh, about uh, James and what he writes about here. The problem is that what James says about righteous living has sometimes been called bad theology. Uh, it's sometimes been sort of dismissed as being second-rate theology. And the reason, you may know, is that Martin Luther the great leader of the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther did so much to advance our understanding of, of the Christian life and Christian hope, uh, with especially his emphasis on sola fide. We're saved by faith alone. We're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Martin Luther had a very low opinion of James. He called this letter, a, he said, this is a right strawy epistle. What does that mean? Well, straw doesn't have a lot of weight, doesn't have a lot of value. So to call it a strawy epistle meant that in Martin Luther's opinion, this letter doesn't have much of value in it. It doesn't have much substance. But why did Luther take such a dim view of, of James's instruction, James's writing? 
I think you've got to look at the opening lines of James's letter to, uh, to, to get a clue for uh, answering this question. James uh, addresses his letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, we expect the content of a letter to be somehow shaped by the people that it is sent to, right? But, uh, and most commentators agree that the 12 tribes in the dispersion refers to the true Israel, that is, uh, believers who share the faith of Abraham. Those who share the same faith of Abraham are called the children of Abraham and uh, even sons of God. And these believers include both uh, Jews and Gentiles, and they're scattered throughout the world. This letter is written to a Christian church that no longer lives in a land where belief in one true God is a unifying foundation for our social order. James's letter is for Christians who live in the midst of a dark world and a depraved world. They're scattered throughout this darkness, and it's a world much like ours. James writes to show us how Christians must live as citizens of God's kingdom in an unbelieving world. And it's faith that makes Christians different. It's faith that sets us apart from the world. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's faith that unites us to one another. That's why we're here together. Some of us know one another well, and others are getting together maybe for the first time. Well, we have a oneness, a unity, because our faith in Christ brings us together. These are people to whom James is writing. He writes to encourage us to live by faith in an unbelieving world. This is a very practical purpose, to show us how to live by faith. It's this faith that is the wellspring of true righteousness. By contrast, Paul's letter, Paul's, all of Paul's letters seem to be more concerned with evangelism. How can we come and how can we lead others into God's kingdom? And Paul is often concerned with what's called soteriology. That's the, the way we can be saved from our sins and, and brought into a new relationship with God. Paul declares that faith alone is the key to entering God's kingdom. It's not by works of the law as the Pharisees conceived righteousness. It's not by works, it's by faith in Christ. Now, Martin Luther, who didn't like James's letter very much, liked the letters of Paul very much. And Martin Luther based his beliefs and his teaching on his study of Galatians and Romans, in particular letters by the Apostle Paul. 
And Martin Luther had seen the importance of Paul's teaching that justification or, or salvation is God's gift. We receive it through faith alone. The only way God has provided for us to be forgiven of our sins and enter into life is, is through personal faith that joins us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. So Luther emphasized there's no salvation for any of us except through faith alone. Jesus alone is, who can say it, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, Jesus said, but through me. So he is our only hope of escaping the the terrible judgment of God on our sins. And both Paul and James are concerned with this. They're both concerned with our faith in Jesus Christ. But James does not write to show us how to enter into God's kingdom. James writes to show us how Christians must live when we are citizens of God's kingdom. And we're living in the midst of this unbelieving world. Both James and Paul knew that believers will face resistance to their faith and often will feel small and, and isolated in their scattered uh, communities and churches. And we feel this way sometimes, even us today. We seem outnumbered and marginalized and sometimes snubbed for our faith or slandered, even ridiculed, and sometimes even persecuted. But James reminds us in the very beginning of his letter that we are going to face trials, trials that test our faith. <coughs> but there's a reason for this. God tests your faith in order to form your character as a Christian. In chapter 1, verse 3, James says, this testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God takes weak and wavering Christians and he, he makes us steadfast. He gives us a spine to stand in the face of, of opposition. So we don't crumble when we face uh, hostility. But there's more. He says, and let endurance or steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Through trials, you see, God is at work making you perfect. He's at work doing that. Perfect in knowledge, perfect in righteousness and in holiness. We have a long way to go, but God will do it. So rejoice in what God is doing when you encounter various trials. Remember that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Trials cannot destroy you if you are anchored by faith in Christ. In fact, the testing of your faith will make you more righteous and more holy. You see, true faith 
works. True faith does this. Well, with all this in mind, let's, let's look at our passage in James chapter 2. And I want to focus on James uh, 2 verses 14 through 19. In these verses, James deals with two issues. And these two issues concern faith. And they, they were issues that challenged Christians in the early church, and they still challenge uh, us today. The two issues he deals with are first in verses 14 through 16. He shows us how important it is that faith be visible in the way we live. Our faith must be visible. Faith is a matter of the heart, right? But our faith must somehow show it ought to be visible. So how can we recognize true faith? How can we see it? How can we know if someone who says he has faith really is a believer? And second, uh, second issue he raises in verses uh, 17 through 19, James answers the challenge of those who say, uh, faith doesn't matter. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Your belief, your faith doesn't really matter. You can believe anything you want. What matters is how you live, what you do. Your works matter, not your faith. Uh, what matters is uh, that you be a good person. Doesn't matter to me what you believe as long as you're a good person. If you have good works to show, isn't that enough? And this is the issue that, uh, that James deals with. So let's look at each of these. First, uh, James raises the problem faced by all churches. Uh, how can we tell if a person's profession of faith is really true? We don't have a crystal ball that helps us identify true faith. In uh, uh, when, when someone says, I am a believer, I believe in Jesus Christ, that's fine. How do we know if it's true or not? Uh, sometimes we may make mistakes. We're eager to welcome new members into the church. But we can't really read a person's heart, can we? But is that really important? If, if someone comes and says, I have faith, I have faith. Can't we just take a person's word for it? Well, this is the problem that James is addressing here in verses 14 through 16. If it, He begins with a rhetorical question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? What good is it? Can that faith save him? The faith that, you know, someone says, I have faith in Jesus Christ. Is that all it takes? Just saying the words. No, that faith cannot, that faith alone cannot do anything. You can say the words, but if you don't really have the faith in you and the faith that shows in the way you behave, then claiming to have faith isn't going to do you much good. It's not the verbal formula that one uses, but the reality of the faith in your soul that matters to God. And if elders require no more than reciting certain words, they may welcome as a new church member someone who's not yet entrusted their life to Christ. The church should help 
prospective members consider what true faith in Christ requires, urging them to count the cost as well as the benefits of a life of faith. Otherwise, a new member may be deluded. He may think he, he or she is safe, um, safe from God's judgment merely by joining a church or that he has satisfied God merely by making some kind of a verbal profession of faith. But it's the responsibility of the church to look for evidence, evidence of faith in the way you live and to consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. That's what the church has to be doing. If the church fails to do it, it may be soon filled with people whose lives have never been touched by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. The proof of faith, James tells us, is not just the words we say, but the way we live. Jesus told his disciples, let your light shine. But how do we do that? In our, it's our works that show the light of faith within us. And, you know, faith is a lot like love in this respect. In his first epistle, John says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, it doesn't mean you should never, you never need to say, husbands to your wife, I love you, or vice versa, or to your children, I love you. That is important, but it's most important that you show that love in the way you live and the things you do. Uh, in the same way, uh, James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Faith moves us to love our neighbors, helping them in substantial ways, maybe providing food and clothing, uh, maybe fulfilling uh, and therefore fulfilling what James calls the royal law, the law of love. Faith and love must go hand in hand uh, because works of faith are also works of love. It's sad that some who seem to know all the right doctrinal answers, who hold resolute convictions about their faith, yet have a hard time showing mercy, showing compassion, showing gentleness or patience toward others. And James asks concerning them, can that faith save them? No, faith has to show in the way you treat other people. Faith that unites us to Christ will fill us with the love of Christ. Faith working through love enables us to love others as Christ first loved us. Even when we were dead in our sins, he loved us. So also, if you claim to have faith, but you can't trouble yourself to help the needy or the lost, what good is that? Professing faith without the fruit of Christian love, can save no one. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, James says, is dead. So that's the first issue. How do we know if a person who says he has faith really is a believer? Look at their works. 
James takes up a second question about faith in verses 17 through 19. Since a mere uh, profession of faith with no corresponding works is worthless, this might lead someone to think that, well, good works are more important than faith. What God wants to see is our works. But that would be a mistake. And that's the point, really, of what James writes in verse 18. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. There's a contrast. You have faith, I have works. And the contrast really raises a question. Which is really more important? Faith or works? Um. There are untold numbers of people in the world today who would say, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe. If it works for you, that's fine. I'm tolerant. What you believe is fine. It's not really all that important. What's more important is what, how you live, what you do, how you treat others. And so good deeds are way more important than the faith behind the deeds. And this is a very common idea in this country. It's really called moralism. Moralism. It's the way many parents and teachers, and we have parents here. But beware, parents, that you don't teach your children just to be good. I hear that so often. Be good. Parents tell their their children, teachers tell their students, be good. That's what they're after. They want good behavior. But they neglect to show why this is important. God in his moral law never entered the discussion. Just be good. Behave in a certain way. And at some point in his life, the child, and I think every child will ask, why should I behave this way? Why? And if they've never been taught the answer to that question, they don't know about God and his law and his blessing and his righteousness. They don't know about God. They will think, I'm tired of living this way just to please others. I want to live my way. And that's simply human nature. That's simply fallen human nature. We want to put ourselves first. And with no knowledge of God or his goodness, countless young people have never, well, they've rejected the morals of their parents. And they've embarked on a self-centered and self-destructive path. And I'm speaking from my own experience. That's what I did. That's what I did. And I regret it, but God in his grace turned me back and brought me to himself. You see, good moral training isn't enough. Moral training can't fix our social problems. It can't prevent addictions. It can't prevent, uh, you know, 
our addictions to drugs and alcohol and money and sex and power. Good moral training can't prevent gender dysphoria. Good moral training can't uh, prevent even mass shootings. Contrary to popular opinion, what you believe is at the root of the way you live and what you do. What you believe matters. It matters very much. What you believe about God, what you believe about your consequent relationship with God will shape the way you live and the way you treat others. Sadly, it's not only secular unbelievers, atheists, you know, who who think this way. Many churches have also strayed from the biblical Christian teaching on this issue. And many churches have begun to teach that deeds matter more than faith. And many churches fell in love with what's called the social gospel in their desire to solve the social problems of the world, such as hunger and poverty and crime and and injustice, they neglected the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. And in the end, those churches lost their way. They gave up faith in order to pursue works. And today, most people who identify as progressive and liberal do not understand or even care that it was the Christian faith that first moved people to show mercy to the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, the enslaved, and the outcast. It's the progressives who have shut their eyes to the only real solution to man's social problems. And unless, unless you get a correct diagnosis, you can't hope to treat any sickness. Jesus gave that diagnosis. Jesus said that man's deepest problem is sin, the cause of greed, pride, envy, dishonesty, lust, malice, violence, all of these things that we encounter in our world. These bad things come from inside the heart of man. That's called sin. And the wages of sin is death. It is sin that separates us from God. Sin is a deep problem, a deadly problem, and and it's infected the entire human race. But God sent us Christ to deal with that problem. He He gave the name Jesus. The name Jesus means Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. When the church decided to focus on man's social ills, they took their eyes off of the Savior, off of Christ, and they sacrificed the hope of dealing with sin, the hope of eternal life. Because that hope is found not in the works of the flesh, but by faith in Christ alone. So when someone says, You have faith and I have works. How should we answer? This is the way James responds. He says, show me 
your faith apart from your works, if you can. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The main thing, James says, is to show your faith. Parents, how are you showing your faith? To your children, to your neighbors, to your boss, to all kinds of people, your friends around you. Show your faith. There's really no way to show your faith to the world except by your works. And it's that faith that God wants to see. It's faith that God wants us to show. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, says Hebrews 11.6. But we can only show our faith by the way we live. Of course, not all faiths are equal. Human history is littered with the different religions and different gods or idols that man has created. And among these are the religions that caught on and attracted a wide following like Islam and Buddhism, etc., and in our Western culture, the current popular religion really seems to be humanism, faith in mankind or faith in ourselves. But we never made ourselves. There's only one God who made us. Man has made many religions, but only one God has made us. So it's absolutely necessary that you put your faith in this God, the only God who can help you. James says in verse 19, you believe that God is one, or you believe there is one God, and that's good. You do well. But that sort of faith isn't enough. <clears throat> Belief in a generic God is, <clears throat> is not a faith that will save you. <clears throat> He says, even the demons believe that much. Is that the only faith you want? The faith that the demons have? It won't help you. That's a faith that produces no fruit. It can do nothing for you because it does nothing to connect you to the God who is really there. Belief in one God is necessary, but it doesn't get us very far. It can't move us to right actions. It can't move us to love God or to love one another. Faith in a God of the human imagination has no power to bring us closer to the real God. It can't lead us to do what is good and right in God's sight. Only when we come to know God, we come to know the true God who has revealed himself to us in, in the scriptures and by the work of his Holy Spirit. Only when we come to know this God do we begin to do the works that he wants us to do. You will need faith in the one true God in order to do good works that are pleasing to him. Lots of people do good works just to be noticed by others, just to be pleasing and uh, to win the praise of men. But Jesus said, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. 
That is why God made us. To glorify him. So what James teaches us about faith can be put very simply. Faith works. Faith works. Now that can be taken in two ways, and both are true. On one hand, faith works in the sense that it accomplishes something for us. It produces a desired effect. You, know, you turn on a light switch and you say, oh, the light works. When it comes on and it shines, faith works. It works for us, for our well-being, for our good. Faith opens the door to eternal life for everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your good deeds, your hard work will never do that. Faith works. It brings us to God. Only faith will clothe you with the righteousness of Christ. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. But there's another way we need to understand that faith works. In this sense, when faith joins us to Christ, like a branch grafted onto a productive grapevine, we begin to produce good fruit. Merely to say, I have faith, is not enough. There must be actual fruit. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? It's our good works that give us confidence and that testify to our fellow believers that our faith is genuine, but our faith also testifies to the world out there, the world all around us that there is a God in heaven, a God who is working in his people. As Christians, we must let our faith shine so that others will see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. So what does your faith look like? What does your faith look like? Real faith works. It is patient. It is steadfast. It endures. Faith loves. And it shows up in the deeds of kindness and mercy that God calls us to do every day. Sooner or later, your faith will be tested. So don't be surprised by trials. As long as your faith holds, you will pass any test. And God will reward your work of faith. Finally, faith joins us to one another. It joins us to the people of God. We may be small and scattered, but Christ has put us here in a fallen world like stars in the sky to guide dying neighbors into the path of life. That's one reason he has put us here. We have a dark world in many ways. We are to shine, to guide others into life. Psalm 23 says, He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
when you walk by faith in those paths of righteousness, you will never stumble. But first things first, true righteousness always begins with faith in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. May God bless you and make this year a year of much growth in grace and righteousness and faith in all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would plant it in our hearts and give us uh, the wisdom to live each day and the encouragement to follow you and to glorify you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.